0: In Isaiah chapter 44, and as you're turning there, let me remind you that we're in this defense from chapter 40 through 48, 48 this, uh, this defense that God makes of his uniqueness against all other gods. And so as we continue tonight, watch for the repeated themes, um, specifically that who is like me, uniqueness, the definitive statement that God makes, um, that His declaring the end from the beginning, that his word given to the prophets and then fulfilled is the evidence of his unique divinity. And then, as we talked about last week in the early 40s, with this reverberation of servants, okay, Uh, these servants keep showing up in Isaiah's prophecies, and they're very clearly not the same people. There are three major servants, uh, all of which we've kind of gotten a peek at. There's my servant Israel, it's this collective national servant of God, Uh, and then there's his soon-to-come faithful servant, as contrasted with Israel, his blind servant. And then there's my servant, the king from the east, who tonight will be my servant, Cyrus. And then we're also going to meet a lowercase s servant in this text as well tonight. But notice how these things all weave together. And again, like we talked about last week, uh, you'll see a lot of... uh, don't like the word repetition, we'll say reverberation in the text tonight, um, because Isaiah doesn't say the same thing, he builds, he moves towards a crescendo uh, in, in making his point, and that's where we will come to the climax in chapter 48. But picking up in chapter 44, verse 1, "'But now, hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I have chosen.'" Notice that verse 1 opens looking back on last week, and so it's helpful for us to turn backwards and look at the end of chapter 43 and notice that it's a message of judgment. God identifies himself in verse 25 of 43. I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake and will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, And your mediators transgressed against me, therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. And so just as we saw back in chapter 39, uh, or excuse me, chapter 34, and then the transition to 35, here 43 ends on judgment, but it's not the final word. God says, yes, I'm going to judge you for your sin, Israel. Yes, tribe of Judah, I am going to take you out of the land. Yes, Babylon is coming, but now, verse one of chapter 44, hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, in whom I have chosen. And Jeshurun is another title for uh, Israel comes from the book of Deuteronomy, and it means the upright one, but it's got a little bit of teeth to it. In its context, back in Deuteronomy, God refers to Israel as Jeshurun and then says they're swift uh, to run to disobedience, and so in Deuteronomy, it's a contrast. It's saying this is who you're supposed to be. This is who you are in name. Remember Israel, the one who wrestles with God and prevails, but in actuality, they're not living up to it in Deuteronomy, but here, God looks forward to a time when Jeshurun will be Jeshurun truly, fully. He says, how how do we get there? Now, the striking thing, first and foremost, is we get there through consequence, through judgment, through the gate of Babylon, through the failure of Israel, and yet God's not done. And then notice a new thing in verse 3. He says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. Again we see this uh, this imagery that started in Isaiah 35 of streams in the desert of taking a dry and barren place of death and making it a thriving and flourishing abundant place of life. But notice he interprets it for us. He's not just talking about the desert land around Israel. He says I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings upon your descendants. Now, with him just referencing the book of Deuteronomy, that's again a little bit profound. Because in the same context that Jeshurun is identified in the book of Deuteronomy, it leads up to the two ways of life. Moses says, choose now before you life and death. The way of life is the way of obedience. And it leads to the blessings that are promised in the covenant. But the way of death is the way of disobedience. And it leads to the curses that are promised. And here is Israel in disobedience. And God is saying, nevertheless, on the other end, there will be blessing upon your descendants fact, verse 4, they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowering streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. And the last thing I want you to notice there uh, is, you know, when we talk about things just popping up all over the place, like he mentions here and springing up among the grass, there's a little bit of surprise. Right? It's not just a picture of abundance, but it's amazing how spread out things are. And notice here uh, that verse 5 identifies people who suddenly identify with the name of Jacob, who take on the name of Israel. It seems to be broader than national Israel here. He's recognizing, like Paul talks about in Romans chapter 9, a grafting in to the tree of Israel and additional people who will come in and say, we also are God's people. We also Belong to the Lord. And so this is even bigger than Israel's expectations. It's not just a return to the land. It's not even just restoration. It's abundant life that overflows the boundaries of Israel. And we'll see this again. It goes full fledged international. And then, verse 6 Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Again, he lays on the identifiers I'm the Lord, I'm your King. I'm your redeemer. I'm the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, right? The, The general of the armies of heaven. I am the first, he says, and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. These other representatives of these other gods, these ones who would put up a contender and say, here is a rival for God. He says, let them speak of the future. Let them testify to the things that have not yet happened. And so he puts Israel here in the midst of Babylon, a place of great idolatry. uh, uh, And he says, don't fear them and their gods. There is no contender for me. Your destruction, your... uh, exile into Babylon is not out of my weakness, but part of my sovereign plan, which is why I told you before that it would happen. And he says in verse 8, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. And so again, God makes this stand for uniqueness and points to the fulfillment of prophecy as the demonstration of that. Now he goes on, and for the rest of this passage, he contrasts himself with the gods of the other nations. He contrasts himself with idols, and I want you to notice uh, there's a verbal contrast in verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing. That word there for fashion we've already encountered in chapter 44. It's back in verse 2 when he says, thus is the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb. So here's the alternatives and the so-called rivals. The God who made you and the gods you made. See the contrast there? It's an intentional verbal contrast. The way that Isaiah goes about this is not that he makes two columns and compares them at every point. Instead, he satirically lays out the other alternative, but subtly he still points to the differences. But notice here, he doesn't just say that those uh, who are fashioned, those idols who are made are nothing. He says those who fashion Idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither sow nor see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or cast an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions should be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. These man-made gods are just that. they're man-made. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They should be terrified. They should be put to shame together. And then he starts to walk through the making of an idol. And this is intentionally satirizing. Okay? It's intentionally satire. He's mocking the process by making it silly. And so notice what he says in verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool. He works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. Notice, before the gods can even be made, you need tools to make the gods. And so that's where it starts. It starts one stage back, and even the making of that tool exhausts the maker, right? They have to take a break. They have to, you know, have a smoke break or go get a snack or take a nap. Uh, And that's just in making the tool to make the idol. Verse 13, the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house, okay? And so here, these gods are planned out, the schematics are made, the lines are drawn, you know, on the wood, the the rough outline is given, and the image is inherently anthropomorphic. It's inherently human, okay? And so, you need to remember this in the context of two places, okay? First, Deuteronomy, right in the midst of the Ten Commandments, the the very beginning, Exodus as well. You shall have no graven image. You shall worship no representatives of my divinity, right? But that word image, we have to follow that back further, than the Ten Commandments. We have to take that all the way back to the book of Genesis. If you want to understand the logic of why it was inappropriate to worship in icon, in symbol, God with man-made things, you have to go all the way back to Genesis and recognize that man is made in the image, same word, of God. Okay, That there is one thing on earth that even does justice to who God is. And God made it, and it's you. You bear the mark of being God's image bearer. Um, Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, has a very simple definition of the image of God that I always find helpful. It's simply this. The image of God means that in some way you are like God and that you are called to represent him. In fact, when we find images of God in the religions and cultures around Israel in the ancient Near East, almost always, almost always it refers to the king of those nations. Kings are in the image of God, okay, at the very best, but Genesis universalizes it, Uh, puts it to both genders. In the image of God, he created them, Genesis 127 says. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. Uh, and then most importantly, those images are representative. It's God's vice regents, if you will, on earth. That's what humanity was supposed to be. That's why what comes after creation of mankind in the image of God in Genesis 127. A command, be fruitful and multiply and fulfill the earth and have dominion over it. They were to represent God. That's, That's the functional purpose of humanity. But also because we were made by God and made to image God, it makes any other representative, which is not living and breathing and thinking and capable of communion with God, a mockery. It can't be representative. If you read in the Psalms, there's a critique of idols and it it nails this down this is what the psalmist says he says your gods these little statues these representations of your gods they have eyes but they can't see they have mouths but they don't speak to you like isaiah says here they don't foretell the future they have ears but they can't hear your prayers and if you want to see them move to another place you have to pick up your own gods and take them with you and again the point of the psalmist there is not how silly you are to worship a block of wood that's not what the idols of Baal were to the worshipers of Baal. It was representative. But he says, how well your idol resembles your God. Because it's no God at all. But when you reverse engineer that, when you look at that, you understand then why human beings are made to be in the image. But here's the irony that Isaiah brings out. What do we do? We go and we turn around and we make gods in our image. And if you look at the ancient religions... Uh, and the gods that fill them, what do you find? You find gods that are disappointingly human. They're capricious. They're jealous. They're incredibly sexually unrestrained. They're violent. Right? We took what we see in life and we go, "This is what it, must. It, what must it? Excuse me. This is what it must be like in the heavenly realm." We project who we are onto what we worship but it was supposed to be the other way. What we worship was supposed to shape us. And instead, we shape things in our image, and it's like making a copy of a copy. It degrades and it degrades and it degrades. It moves in the wrong direction and not towards being godly or godlike or god-honoring or god-reflecting or properly imaging God, and it moves towards self-imaging. Have you ever plugged... uh, This is now becoming a little outdated but i'm young enough that it can't be that outdated uh have you ever plugged a uh, camcorder into the television so that the television is operating as a monitor for the camcorder and then turn the camcorder to look at the television and it starts to loop what it's seeing and it just pulls through the gate over and over again you get the same thing actually that happens if you take two cell phones and you flip one upside down and you put it to the other one the little echo starts to swing through it and reverberate it until it gets really loud and distorted. That's the problem with man-made worship. When we shape our own gods, it's inherently distorted, and then that distortion feedback loops and shapes us. That's why uh, it's ironic or appropriate even, not just ironic, it's appropriate that when Israel forms a golden calf to worship, because who knows what happened to Moses? Moses. What is the label that God gives them in his complaint? They are stiff-necked, like a stubborn cow. Okay? That God that they worship, already they're representing in their obstinacy, just like a cow pulling against the yoke. Okay, And so here, the, the irony is not just that these men are making a little object and then treating it as worship, it's that they're moving the wrong way down the chain, It's that they're having this feedback loop problem and they can't see the irony of that. That if we can properly, in our own craft and with our own talent, encapsulate God, what kind of a God is that? And so, verse 14, he cuts down cedars. He chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. Do you see all the planning and purpose of intention here? He makes the tools and now he goes out and he selects a tree, and he says, when that one gets big and strong, that one is going to be the one that I'm going to use, right? Verse 15, uh, sorry, tail end of 14, he plants the cedar, and a rain nourishes it, okay, he lets it grow. Verse 15, then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it, he warms himself, he kindles a fire, and he bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol, and he falls down before it. And so the same wood is split into two pieces and some of it becomes wood for the fire and other it becomes a representative of the worship. And again, what's the only difference between those two things? The choosing of the man, the shaping of the man, and the designation of the man. You know, it's, it's an old quip and I think it really misses the point on many levels, but at one point it's appropriate to say, how do you know which half is the god and which half is for firewood? right? Isaiah is playing with these ideas, and he says in verse 16, half of it he burns over the fire, over half of it he eats his meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, ah, I'm warm, I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down to it, he worships it, he prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. Paul says the same thing about idol worship. He says effectively that we don't start worshiping things that are not God until we reject giving right and proper worship to the one true God. And so notice, this is how it's put in Romans. It's worth reviewing. Romans chapter 1. Okay, so in verse 18 he says that uh, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they're without excuse so phase one, God has made himself known. It's all around us. Creation itself makes the invisible attributes of God visible, okay? Second, verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, and so notice the order there. They reject the truth, and so God gives them over to a lie. They reject worshiping God, but human beings are made to worship, and so they turn and worship something else. But it is inherently not God. Okay? It's, it's like if you decide that 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4, you're only left with wrong answers. You can choose whichever answer you want, 5, 15, 105. But the only answer you've scratched off the list is the one you need. And so they turn and they begin to worship things in the image of the same, self-same things that God made. Uh, Jeremiah makes the same point. He says that the people of Israel committed two evils. They forsook me, the fountain of living water, and made for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold any water. We don't go searching to quench our thirst until we walk away from the fountains of living water. But when we do, because we've gone away from the source, at best what we do is build little broken pots. And they're so broken they can't even hold water. If we can just collect it, it drains out as we get it. It's Unproductive. It's backwards. That's the point that Isaiah is making here. He says uh, he says that God is involved in this basically because in their rejection, He's only left them with falsehoods because there's nothing left. Verse nineteen. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say half of it. I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten, and I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. Okay. Now, notice the metaphor there. It's the other wood that's gone to ash. But his diet is one of ashes here because there's... We look for nourishment in what we worship. We look for strengthening. um, But it's just a block of wood. It's just an empty thing. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself... He cannot say, is there not a lie in my right hand? And that's kind of a scary sentence. Right? We would think if we could choose to believe a lie, then we can choose to reject that lie and turn back to the truth. But Isaiah says it's not that easy. In fact, that's another theme you see in the Bible's teaching on idolatry is that idolatry leads to bondage. Okay? And so Jesus says this about sin. He says that he who sins becomes a slave of sin. And really, in practice, we know this to be true. We begin with choices, but the choices become habits. And then the habits become rituals, and the rituals become permanent. And even the things that we didn't think would be such a big deal, we now have a hard time shaking. It's, it's an irony of idols, because they may be no gods, and they only have the power we give them. But in some ways, the power we give them is permanent. We can't break it on our own. We need God to do that. In contrast, again, moving back, verse 21, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you were my servant. I formed you and you are my servant. Again, we see one of the servants of the Lord here is in intention, in purpose, the nation of Israel. He says, O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I've blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, your sin like mist Return to me for I have redeemed you. And so, notice here, God, his character is so consistent that even in the midst of this rejection, even in the midst of this turning to idols, even in the midst of suppressing the truth in all unrighteousness, and remember, in Romans, that's our autobiography. That's our origin story, okay? That's our life. Uh, But God freely and fully offers here forgiveness. Even there, he makes a way back, and we're still waiting for the answer. All the way back from chapter 1, come now, let us reason together, though your sins were as scarlet, they shall become white as snow. And the whole time in Isaiah, we're going, how could that be? And again, we get this promise, but we haven't figured out how it works yet. We will next week. Verse 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things Who alone stretched out the heavens and spread out the earth by myself. And so the carpenter, he stretches out his measuring rod. But God, he stretched out the heavens. He made all there is. Verse 25, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of the diviners. Who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. Now remember, this is not God's vindictiveness. This is not just God playing with people who have rejected him. This is a tremendous grace. He won't allow our false false idols to satisfy us. He won't allow our lies to live out their lives as truths. Uh, He breaks apart our wisdom because it is foolishness. Like we talked about this morning, the first step in God opening your eyes is showing you that you're blind. That's where it has to begin. Because unlike physical blindness, in which case if you're physically blind, you know it, spiritually blindness has a double blindness. You're blind to it. And so the first thing God has to do is say, you don't know. The first thing he has to do is take what you stand on, what you build your life on, what you're sure of, and shake it to the ground. And then you go, okay, now I'm ready for a listen. Now I'm ready for something new. Now I'm in a place that need helps. Now I need to be instructed. Verse 26 In contrast to making fools of the diviners, he confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Okay, now, the first image is there, rebuilding Jerusalem, re-inhabiting Judah, that's really easy. But what is he talking about when he says that he's going to dry up the deep? Okay. There's probably two significant uh, passages and we're only going to focus on the one in Isaiah. It's ever since the Exodus when Israel flees Egypt and then is pursued by Egypt and find themselves with the Red Sea behind them and the chariots of Egypt closing in. There's been this instinctual comparison between a flood and a destructive enemy army. And we've already seen it in Isaiah. This is exactly what he says uh, uh, Assyria is going to be like. Assyria is going to come in like a flood and destroy Judah all the way up to the gates of Jerusalem. But here is the reversal of that. Here, this great deep, this great army, this destruction, it's going to be drained dry. Okay, I'll dry up your rivers. And then notice verse 28, who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now in the Hebrew of Isaiah, this word here for Cyrus is Koresh, but it's incredibly close uh, to the, uh, the Persian pronunciation of their king, King Cyrus, who conquered the known world. But we need to remember here that Isaiah is writing during the lifetime of Hezekiah. Still a few generations from the beginning of the Babylonian exile, and that lasts for 70 years until Cyrus shows up on the scene. Okay? So at this point, as he's announcing by name this coming deliverer, Persia's not a threat on the big radar. In fact, Babylon hasn't even conquered Israel. And Cyrus himself has yet to even be born. But what has God been saying this whole time? Here's how you're going to know I'm the real deal. I'm going to put it out there. Declare the end from the beginning. Make known right up front what's going to happen. And he names names. He says, his name is Cyrus. Let me tell you about him. Okay. So chapter 45, verse 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed. Now, that word there is where we get our word Messiah. But remember, anointing uh, is something that happens often in the Old Testament. The high priest was anointed. The kings of Israel were anointed and here the idea isn't even that God's going to send a prophet to, uh, to Cyrus and physically with oil anoint him and designate him. As we're going to see God's going to use Cyrus pretty much without his knowledge. He's not going to know what's going on but he designates him. He has a calling and a purpose on his life. He says from my perspective I've got a plan for you. I've chosen you. I'm working with you. I had a friend this week uh, write me about the idea of open theism, which is a theological construct that basically is trying to solve a couple of issues, two in particular. One, the nature of our relationship with God and free will. Okay, so how is it that we can really make choices in life and they matter if God is fully sovereign? And then two, the relationship between a good and sovereign God and evil. And so open theism says, depending on the version, that God either is finite in his knowledge by nature, because knowing the future is not a thing. In other words, it's just like saying that God can't make a rock so big he can't lift it, not because it's hard, but because it's not logically possible, okay? Or others say that it's not a limitation of, of life itself, but they say that it's one that God has chosen for the sake of making choice. He's chosen to restrain his viewing of the future, to give us the opportunity to really actively, in a way that matters, choose him. Okay. But the biggest problem with open theism in the entire Bible is these chapters right here, because God doesn't present Himself as laying out an option to Cyrus. Of leaving a choice on the table he calls him by name he lays out his destiny it's chosen and planned and he takes the credit he says this is my doing notice this as we go on he says thus says the lord to his anointed to cyrus whose right hand i have grasped to subdue the nations before him and to loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that gates may not be closed and this is exactly what cyrus does Okay, so here's what happens in in uh, the empire-oriented history around the land of Israel. It begins with Assyria. Assyria starts to build up momentum, starts to conquer and uh, conquer neighboring nations, put others under tribute, and they start to dominate this whole area, and they do so for a while until Babylon gets strong, resists, conquers Assyria, and all of. Assyria's kingdoms including Israel that's what happens to Judah and then what happens is under Cyrus the medio persians come in and conquer all that area and a little bit more and then right behind that is King Alexander of the Greeks and he conquers way further than anyone has and then finally Rome comes in takes all of that land you know and and creates kind of the last great empire of the ancient world. But they're all built one on top of another. Each one becomes the defending champion and then is knocked down by the up and coming. Okay? And so Cyrus is in that line. But he's the one that comes in and knocks out Babylon. If you read the book of Daniel, we start with Babylonian kings, Nebuchadnezzar. And then during the days of one of Nebuchadnezzar's predecessors, remember there's the, the drinking and the party and the writing on the wall. Today the kingdom is lost the Medes and the Persians are coming, uh, and Cyrus takes the entire city without a fight. And that's the end of the Babylonian kingdom. But more importantly for the Jews, it's Cyrus who gives the declaration, all right, Israel, you can now go back and repopulate your land. And you can see this at the end of Second Chronicles. You can see the, uh, the legal documentation that gives Israel permission to repopulate their once land, 70 years abandoned. But here in Isaiah, hundreds of years before that, God is laying it out. He's establishing it. And he says, here, I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to open the doors. I'm going to fight all the wars, and you get the victory. Verse 2, I'll go before you and level the exalted places. I'll break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by name. Okay. And so notice he says, called you by name, I name you, though you do not know me. Cyrus doesn't grow up familiar with the God of Israel. He doesn't growing up knowing he has a destiny. It's, it's at, at the fulfillment of it, what's the idea here is Cyrus comes in and uh, Daniel or Daniel adjacent, someone comes and says, oh, we know who you are, look. And you can tell just looking at the scroll, this is, this is old paper, but here you are. And so God, it's, it's almost a little bit meta. It's like he waves his hand right out of the text and says, hey Cyrus, it's wild. And so he says here, um, I call you by name though you did not know me, verse five, I am the Lord and there is no other beside me, there is no God, I equip you though you do not know me. Side note, that is true of every living human being. Whether they know God at all, it is God who gives them breath, it is God who gives them gifts, it is God who determined if they were born to this family in this place or that place, right? Every determination, all of your starting elements for the recipe of your life come out of God's pantry. They're provided. They're not things you can take credit for. You can't say, look at my wonderful brain, because there was nothing you did to get it. You can't say, look at my wo- uh, wonderful, you know, habits. Because the grist that led to those habits were outside of your control. Where you were born, the family you were born, your genetic code that precedes you, all of those things. But here he says, I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west. And from the west that there is none beside me. Rising of the sun happens in what direction? The east, Right. So he says, I'm doing this not just so Cyrus will know, but so from the east to the west, everyone will know that I'm unique. Now, I love this because, uh, because Christians have al- always felt the need to explain rational reasons for believing what we believe. There's a difference between articulating what we believe and why we believe it. Okay? In fact, Paul in the New Testament says that we should be ready to make a defense to those who question us. And the word there, defense, comes from the Greek word apologia, where we get our idea of apologetics. Okay, But here is God's chosen apologetics. Here is his designated, here is the proof. And again, recognize here, we'll see a little bit of this in the next few chapters, but recognize here that it's not just something that points to God. It's points to God because God's purpose is to point to himself through it. See the difference between that? It's not tertiary. It's not on a sideline. It's not um, the aftermath of God's work. It's the intention. It's the plan. It's the work of art. There. Now you can see. God's desire, again, as we've seen throughout Isaiah, is to be known. Returning to the text here, he says, I'm the Lord. There is no other, verse 7. I form light and create darkness. Now, I'm not so sure about this, but it is very interesting that Cyrus, by religion, would have been a Zoastrian, right? That's the Persian religion. And Persian religion, Zoastrianism, was inherently dualistic, meaning it believed not in one god, but two gods, a god in the balance of good and a god in the balance of evil, and they felt that both were necessary for balance in the universe, okay? There are many similar beliefs, whether if we're talking, you know, about pop culture with Star Wars and the balance of the force, uh, or if we're talking about um, uh, certain other Eastern religions, but Zoroastrianism is one of the oldest. And the way that they identified those, much like yin and yang, white and black, was darkness and light. And it may be here that this is another personalized touch where he says, you believe that there is light and darkness, and he says, I made them both. You believe that there's one powerful light God and one dark God, and he said, but they both come from me. He says, I make well-being and I create calamity, yin and yang. I am the Lord who does all these things. Again, I think this is one of the strongest statements of God's overarching sovereignty that we find in the Bible. Verse 8, shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. That the earth open, that salvation and righteousness bear fruit, that the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Now, it seems a little bit off topic, but what is that? It's going, okay, God has a plan. He's executing it. Where's it going? This is, this is what I love. God doesn't just say, I'm sovereign. He also says, I'm good. The, the balance for God's sovereignty. The reason why we can embrace that is because his trajectory, where he's headed, where he promises he will arrive, is righteousness and fruitfulness. And he says, This is why I made it. This is why I created it. This will reverberate again. We'll have a chance to deal with it in full a little bit later, but notice verse 9: Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Uh Boy, I gotta memorize that and throw that at my kids sometime. I've talked to my oldest son because he's the only one I butt heads with regularly many times. And one of the things that I used to say to him regularly when we were having a fight was, listen, you need to understand that I'm older than you, I'm stronger than you, and I'm smarter than you. And I will win. That's what God is saying here. He's saying, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. You're just my kid. Okay, and there's no... The, Student has become the master at the end of this. There's no, you know, losing ping pong or basketball to your younger kid and realizing that you're getting older. It's different here. But his point is the same. In fact, he says here, does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or, hey, wait a minute, your work has no handles. Here I am, a pot, and you haven't even made any handles? Notice here, the idea here is not just the silliness of a pot saying, hey, could you make me different? It's that the pot doesn't even know what he's being made into. And he's already got opinions. And he goes, oh, you know, this this handle over here isn't even attached. What's it doing there? Maybe it's a tea spout. But the whole point is, you're in the midst. You're in process. You don't get to see the outward. God doesn't share what he's doing with the creation, but he has a plan. Again, I told you, this is one of the strongest passages on God's sovereignty, so it's no surprising that it's this imagery of the the clay pot saying to its potter that Paul picks up in his big anthem on God's sovereignty in Romans verse 9 when he says, who are you to criticize the maker, right? And that's his big question. And again, this isn't defeatist. This isn't just, uh, you know, tapping out because God in his great machismo and strength will always win. It's more than that. But it is just to remind us that it doesn't make any sense. That there is a, a disorder to argue with God. Okay? Now again, there is an arguing with God that is faithful, encouraged, and strongly represented without, throughout Scripture. But it's an arguing of humility. It's an arguing that holds God to his character instead of challenging it. It's an arguing of faith and not of unbelief. It's a different thing. But here, the idea is like a pot criticizing the maker while he's the one being made. Verse 10, Woe to him who says to a father, What are you beginning? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? Okay, there's two ways there. One says, What are you doing? And the other says, Let me give you some advice. Right? Do you see the contrast there? He says, will you command me? He says, no, ask me of things to come. I want you to know. I want to reveal my plans. I want to reveal myself. It's about the attitude and the posture. And then verse 12, I made the earth. I created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. And I commanded all their host. I've stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city. And set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So he's getting back to Cyrus here, and notice that last point. He says, I didn't make an offer, not even an offer that he couldn't refuse, right? I didn't make some sort of a bargain. I didn't lay it on the table and say, I will reward you greatly. I just did it. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush, and the Sabians, men of stature, these are all African nations to the south of Israel shall come over to yours, you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other God beside him. And so again, and we see this regularly, the way that God wins over the enemies of Israel is through a demonstration of his power. He, he pictures a time when those of Israel's traditional enemies, when we read Egypt there, you know, think of, of the beginning of Israel's history, and even Cush and the Sabaeans are a major part of this. He says, but a time is coming where it's different, where the whole world will know my uniqueness. Continuing here in verse 15, truly they will say, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You should not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Now, I just want to flag one thing there. What does he say Uh, will be the words of these foreigners? You are the God who hides yourself. But listen to as it continues, verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. Now, side note, that's a reference to the very opening words of our Bible. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And Genesis 1.2 says, Now the earth was without form and empty. And here, Isaiah picks up on that language and he says he did not create it to be empty. He did not form it to be uninhabited. In fact, if you follow... The creation, we have six days where God is working and the first three are focused on forming and the next three are focused on filling. So he makes the heavens and then on the fourth day he fills them with stars, sun, and moon. He makes the oceans and the sky and on the fifth day he fills them with birds and fish respectively. He makes the ground on the third day and he fills it with animals and beasts of every kind and mankind as well on the sixth day. It starts without form, and he gives it form, day one, two, three. It starts empty, but he fills it. Isaiah is just saying, God's got a trajectory here. He's moving somewhere. He's got a plan. He didn't create it to be emptied or voided. Uh, and then notice this. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. And you go, wait, is it? what is God hidden, or is he speaking? And it's yes. The point is, if we think of God based on starting with us and going looking, he's the hidden God. We can't just find God. It's never going to be the turn of a spade or the solving of a math equation that discovers God. Because we are limited, because we are finite, because our perspective is so simple and small. But it's no big deal, is it, to start at the other end and God say, okay, I want to make myself known, bam, and he makes himself known. But there's a difference. There's a difference between the self-revealing God and the discoverable God. And so the idea here of hiddenness is not that God is unknowable. It's just that we aren't capable of discovering him. In the New Testament, you encounter eight times this Greek word mysterion, which is almost always in the New Testament, in all English versions, translated mystery. And I think it's probably easy to see why, right? Because that's its root word. But the idea is not a mystery like an enigma or a riddle. A mysterion is something that you only know if you're told. Leslie Newbegin has a book based on this word mystery in the New Testament. He calls it The Open Secret. Because in the New Testament, God takes his hidden plans and he speaks what they are and he lays them out on the table. And if you read Ephesians chapter 2 or the other places where you encounter this word mystery, you'll see that that's always what it's talking about. It's about something that God has made known that was always part of the plan, but now it's been revealed. Okay, it's a revealed secret. It's one that you only can know if it's spoken And the great news is that God has spoken. And that's the same thing we see here in Isaiah. And so notice what he's saying about this. Again, I think this is so profound. He says, I didn't do these things in a corner. They weren't in a hidden place, unobserved. You know, if God speaks in a forest and nobody's there to hear it, did God speak at all? It's an irrelevant question. God didn't speak in the forest. He spoke in the lives of men and women as he empowered by his spirit. And he demonstrated that it was really him by prophetically laying out what only God could say would come to pass. He says, I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. He's not hiding, he's inviting, and that invitation is open. That invitation is welcome. That invitation, that revelation is trustworthy. There's been a major emphasis, as I've talked with younger Christians, people my age and below, uh, in the last few years of getting back to the God who is mysterious. And there's some appropriateness of that, okay? With a lot of the denominationalism of Christianity, um, with the fundamentalism movement, there was a dogma that became really easy to describe and understand God, and draw boundaries around God, and anything that didn't fit in those boundaries couldn't be possible. And we're smart, I think, to push away from that human dogmatism that says, I know my knowledge is perfect and complete, which means you're wrong. Okay, we're still finite and fallible human beings. But whenever they point to passages about God's mysterious nature, they miss that that's talking about how transcendent God is. In other words, God is more than who he declares himself to be, but he's not less. And a lot of times when I hear people talking this way, they're trying to explain away what God has said about himself by appealing to this mysterious God. What the Bible declares about God is that you cannot know him fully, but you can know him truly. That he's displayed enough of him that you can know who he is and even build your life on it. But not enough to fully understand him, to exhaust him, to replace him, to take over his job, to no longer need him. That type of knowledge is not available. If you ever get the chance, read Luther as he talks about the hidden God and the revealed God. Because this is the idea he lays out and he does it so well. He says, for the Christian, focus on the revealed God. Don't worry about the hidden God. Don't look into the secrets. Instead, build your life on the things God has said. Again, all of this requires us to remember God's goodness. Because if God's not good then he could give us the most misleading little view of us and withhold who he really is. If God's not good, then maybe we can't trust that we have the whole story, right? We have those fears in our lives with human beings all the time. How do I know this person is what they appear to be? But if God is inherently good, then he's trustworthy and we can trust that what he's revealed is you know, effectively on a need-to-know basis and not in the offensive, authoritative way, in the actual, I've given you everything you need, That's the argument that he's making here. Verse 20, assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God they cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told you long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there's no other God beside me, a righteous God and savior. There's none beside me. And then notice the invitation here to the deceived, to the rebellious, to the idolater. He says, look, it's right here. I've revealed myself. And what's the call, even at this point? At the end of the world, when all the nations are gathered, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me, every knee will bow, and every tongue shall declare allegiance. In other words, what God says here in Isaiah, he says at the end of time, everybody will know and live as if there's only one God. There won't be this God and that God and the other God. They won't say, I serve this God or I believe in that God. He says, one day, every knee will bow and the only name left on the lips of all of them will be mine. Now that language probably sounds familiar to, to you because it's this language that Paul picks up twice in the New Testament. On one of the occasions, it's in Romans 14, uh, and you can look that one up uh, yourself in Romans 14, but in that context, he's talking about Christians who, uh, who are judgmental of other Christians for internal conscience reasons, okay? So it's not seeing someone murder their grandmother and saying, hey, that's not right. It's do we observe rituals and holy days it's do we eat or not eat are we a vegetarian or do we eat meat it's these types of questions issues of conscience which side note our conscience always has reasons it's very rarely reduced to well that's how mother did it it's usually well i'm concerned about a b and c or when i look at god's character or it just seems wise to me all of those things but paul warns us about being swift to judge another man's servant to judge god's servant and he quotes this passage He says, because everybody's going to have to stand for their own conscience before the Lord. And the reminder there is twofold. One, that includes you, and two, you don't get to be the judge. In that day, there's only one place for humanity, and that's in the dock, not in the jury, okay? But the other place is the one I want to focus on because this one's in Philippians chapter two, okay? And so turn over to Philippians chapter two. Now, let me remind you that Paul is writing to the Philippian church from jail. And because we know from the historical references of the book of Acts, that means that we're talking about 60 AD. Okay. So 30, maybe 33 years maximum removed from the ministry of Jesus. Okay. Paul is writing uh, and Philippians is one of the earliest books in the New Testament. The gospels record stories that are earlier, but they don't get start, they don't start getting written until after the letters of Paul okay, with the exception of being 2 Timothy and a few others. Um, So this is a relatively early piece of the New Testament, and I want you to notice what he says here. And so here in Philippians chapter 2, he's again encouraging a certain behavior in the church because of who Jesus is, but notice what he says uh, in verse 4. Let each of you not only look to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among you which was in which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, now, sometimes people can skirt around the opening of this where it says that Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be held onto and go, that's really weird language. It probably doesn't mean that Paul thinks that Jesus is actually divine. But when he reaches into Isaiah and takes Isaiah's great statement of the uniqueness of God and how everyone will know it at the end and says the name on everybody's lip, lips will be Jesus, it is profound out of the mouth of a monotheistic Jew. And again, this is in, within a generation of Jesus's life. This idea that the divinity of Christ was a late addition like the divinity of the Buddha was is nonsense based on the historical record of the, of the uh, books we have of the Bible and when they were written. The Gospels are written after the letters of Paul, and right here, he is fully comfortable making that connection, making that line. And the only other thing that's worth pointing out, and this is super interesting, because we go, all right, so if Isaiah sees everybody as being worshipers of the one true God, does that mean all will be saved? Interestingly enough, the contrast in these two passages is helpful, because in Philippians, the the culmination, the excitement of it, the joys of salvation. But what is it in Romans? It's one of judgment. There are those who willingly and happily, happily and with joy will say, yes, Jesus, you are Lord. And there are those who will be brought into final submission and surrender to God's lordship. Okay. And we'll see this again in Isaiah, but I just wanted to touch on it here. Let's go back to the book of Isaiah. Uh, we are in chapter 45, and we're picking up in verse 24. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Do you see that? Two groups, an ashamed group and a glorious group. Uh, an incensed group and a justified group the even there is this idea of two groups of people what jesus calls the sheep and the goats all standing before and coming to the same conclusion okay chapter 46 bell bows down nebo stoops their idols are on beasts and livestock okay now Isaiah has been writing these prophecies about the exile of Judah, which will come after Isaiah's death. But he hasn't actually named the name Babylon. We've known that's what he's talking about because that's how the book is structured. So at the end of the narrative in chapter 39, the last thing referenced is Isaiah saying, Babylon's going to be the one that wipes you out. And then this whole appendix to the book starts walking through this, but it's not till 46 that it gets explicit. And when it mentions Bel and Nebo here, these are the gods of Babylon. Okay? Uh, Bel is actually just a title that means Lord, kind of like Baal in the Canaanite religion means Lord. But the god that's being referred to is Lord Marduk. Okay? The champion god that won out over all the other gods and then Nebo is his son. Okay? But notice here here, the great gods of the Babylonians, the great ones that are given the credit when Nebuchadnezzar comes home and says, we beat Israel, praise be to Bel and Nebo, right? He says, a time is coming where they're, they're bowing down, where they're stooping, their idols are on beasts and livestocks. These things you carry are born and burdens on weary beasts. They stoop and bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. In other words, so much for the gods of Babylon Here they are conquered and going into captivity just like their people, which is what happens uh, with Cyrus and Persia. Verse three, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray gray hairs, I will carry you. I love that. He said, you've been my children all the way from the womb to the tomb. I will take care of you. I will watch over you. This is why when Jeremiah says, in the midst of this messy 70 year exile, God has plans to give you hope and a future, that that actually means something. Again, God has a plan and it works through the exile, not around it. It's going through, but it's coming out the other side as well. He says, I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. Notice all of the imagery there is maternal in nature. Just earlier God said, I'm the one who begot you, I'm your father, but here he takes on motherly imagery and he says, I've borne you in my womb. And the idea here of of carried uh, here uh, and even bearing, these are all feminine terms for motherhood. Uh, In Deuteronomy, he goes even further and he says, I have nursed you, I've nourished you. And so he takes this imagery and it's, it's uh, drawn from the, the world of women to make the point of how nurturing and how loving and how caring God is. In fact, uh, there's a place in Isaiah where he says, look, even if a mother could forget the child nursing in her breast, the idea here is that a mom is nursing her child and she looks down and she goes, what is this? And throws it away. He says, even if you could imagine such a thing, I won't forget my love for Israel. And then again, verse five, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god, then they fall down in worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in a place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, and this is his strongest and clearest statement, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. When he gets into the idea of accomplishing purpose there, notice he's not just talking about prediction, is he? This is not Johnny Carson in an envelope. This is not him saying, I see this coming to pass. He says, this is my plan and it will happen because nothing will stop me. Do do we see the difference there? It's not just that God knows the future, he makes it, okay? And so, uh, verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, again, that is Persia, The man of my counsel from a far country, that is Cyrus. I've spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I've purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Again, we deal with Babylon in chapter 47. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughters of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Okay, and so he personifies the Babylonian kingdom like a wealthy or even a royal woman. She's used to sitting in thrones, but now she sits in the dirt. She's used to being delicate, you know, no calluses on the hands, but verse 2, take the millstone and ground fire, uh, ground flour. Do the low work, the manual labor put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Okay. Not even a boat is available, but as they're being trekked out of town, they have to just hike up their clothing and march through the river. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Okay. And so remember this, this, is being stated over Babylon, not because Babylonians are going to read it and shake it in their boots, but because it's going to be read by those in captive and they're not going to be afraid. They know what's coming, okay? That God will save them, he will redeem them just like he redeemed them from Egypt. Verse five, sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you will no longer be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage, I gave them into your hand, You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. And God says, this was my doing. I was bringing about justice, but you used it to perpetuate injustice. I gave this to you, but you took the credit. I built you up, and you said, I will never be removed. Again, there's a good parallel for this in the days of Daniel. When King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon looks around at Babylon, and it's notable in the ancient world, right? One of the seven ancient wonders of the world was the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. That's Nebuchadnezzar's palace, that's his backyard. And so he's looking at that garden, he's looking at the exotic animals he's poured it in, he's looking at the tongues and the ethnicities and the nations that make up his kingdom, and he goes, Man, look at what I've accomplished. And God speaks and says, You fool. Will you really take the credit for this? And he's struck insane and he eats like a cow and lives in the field to remember that he's just a reasonable animal, right? Just a reminder of these things, but it's the same thing that Isaiah condemns here. In fact, uh, it gets further. uh, Notice verse 8, now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sits securely, who says in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. Does that sound familiar? That's the repeated refrain that God uses of himself in this passage. And here Babylon says, I am the unique one. I am the one that stands alone. It's self-worship. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. And he says, these two things, widowhood and the loss of children, shall come to you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. He says your magic won't protect you. In a single day, you will go from top to bottom. You will go from anticipating generations of life and children to losing your children in war and to being widowed. Verse 10, "You you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there's no one beside me. The idea here is because Babylon's at the top of the food chain, they're above the law. Who will hold them accountable? They have all the power. They can use it for themselves. And even if we give the great dictators of history a benefit of the doubt, maybe they did begin with ambitions of benevolence. It's so hard to keep, isn't it? And pretty soon you excuse this horrible doing and that horrible doing and you lavish on yourself while the people are starving and all of these things. Babylon is being criticized for the same thing. And we see what's going on at the heart level. And it goes, nobody's watching anyways. I don't answer to anyone. I am the law, right? Verse 11, but evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. No magic will work. Disaster shall fall upon you for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed perhaps you may inspire territory, or terror. In other words, he says, go ahead and try. Give it your best shot. Pull out all the incantations. Dig deep into your spell books. Hire the greatest priests and have them work all through the night. Verse 13, you are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you, those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, with the new moons make known what shall come upon you. See, the scary thing about sorcery, magic, astrology, idolatry in general, is when it fails you, it's an utter and complete failure, right? We excuse away the little things when our things let us down. If something doesn't fit, we make it fit. But eventually it comes that point where we're leaning so heavily on it, the failure is nothing short of disaster. It's like Jesus says, you don't build on the rock and the storm comes in, How great is the fall of that house? It doesn't just take the roof off, it levels it to the ground. That's what's gonna happen to Babylon. Verse 14, behold they're like stubble, the fire consumes them, they cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself uh, is this, no fire to sit before. He says this isn't just a hearth we're talking about, this is a holocaust. Such to you are those whom you have labored you've done business with you from your youth. They wander about each in his own direction. There is none to save you. Okay, total and complete judgment. Then finally, chapter 48. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah. That may be birth imagery, but we're really not sure. The waters of Judah is a weird way to put it. But it may be, you know, like from the birth canal. It may be talking about generational progression from the tribe, from the line of Judah, okay? Who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. And so Isaiah finishes here by critiquing Israel who in his day, Isaiah sees the future. He knows what's coming, Babylonian exile, the rejection, the whole thing. And he says, but right now you live as God's people. You take the name of Israel, you worship, but your worship isn't true. Verse two, for they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. Now that addition there, he's referring to their language, right? Do you know the God of Israel? The Lord of hosts is his name. He says, you're real good on the lingo. But verse three, the former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them And then suddenly I did them and they came to pass because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is as iron sinew and your forehead as brass. Why? Why does God reveal these things? Why does he tell them what's going to happen? Because he knows that if he didn't, they wouldn't get it. They wouldn't repent. They wouldn't turn around. If he doesn't lay it out in advance, they wouldn't believe that God had done the things he said he would do. And again here, the idea of their neck being like iron sinew goes back to the golden calf and the stubbornness, the great resistance. Verse 5, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, My idol did them, my carved image, and my metal image commanded them. You've heard now and seen all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announced to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. You see again that play between hidden and unhidden? He just says, I already told you these things a long time ago, and he goes, now I'm about to tell you something I've never told you, right? There's a moving forward, there's a progression. He says, verse 7, they are created now, not long ago. Before today, you've never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. It's almost like God can't win. If he doesn't tell Israel, then they're stubborn, and if he does tell them, then somehow they boast in it. I knew that already. They don't want to listen to it because they've already heard it before. And so he does both. He tells them and he doesn't tell them. And here he says, verse 8, you've never heard, you've never known from old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal deal treacherously and that from birth before you were called a rebel. Most likely these new things are what we're about to read about it's the aftermath of Babylon. It's the next step. It's the resolving of the tension of Isaiah. And that stuff, in some ways, it's pre-existing. It's been around. The very first promise God makes in the Bible is that I'm going to set things right. I'll put enmity between the serpent and the seed of the serpent and the woman and the woman's seed will crush the head of the serpent. The promise for redemption is all the way right there. And it occurs many times, but it's in Isaiah that the curtain is pulled back and we get a full view of what it looks like. And actually, it's kind of shocking. But he waits to tell them here. He waits to tell them, and now he's done it. Verse 9, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you that I might not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. In other words, he says, I didn't use Babylon to purify you. I'm not done yet. He said, I used that to protect and to preserve my glory. They couldn't go from false and idolatrous righteousness to true righteousness. They had to be brought low. They had to start over. They had to be removed. They had to fail to keep the covenant so God could keep it on their behalf. That's what he's saying here. Okay, verse 12. In other words, Israel isn't going to come to the end of their story and say, boy, we sure kept up our end of the bargain, didn't we? Verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I've called. I'm he. I'm the first and the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I called to them, they stand forth together. Assemble, all of you, and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldean. Now, this is almost too much. I've chosen Cyrus, sure. I've anointed Cyrus. I love Cyrus. That's what he says here. He says, I, even I, have spoken and called him. I've brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Do you see what Isaiah is doing here? He's like, There was another one I loved, another one I called, another one I chosen but he's been a stubborn and rebellious child. He's like, but I'm going to take this foreigner you've never heard of that worships another God, and he's going to do my will. He's going to accomplish what I've planned. Verse 16, draw near to me. Hear this from the beginning. I've not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I've been there, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Now, that's probably the beginning of what Isaiah starts to do that's new in this book which is that he begins to speak autobiographically. If you're familiar with Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. God has done this for my people. He's suddenly present in the prophecy. This is probably the first place where we find that happening. And he says here, uh, God has sent me. His spirit is speaking. Draw near, right? He's, he's authenticating his message. Verse 17, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way that you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Your name would never have been cut off or destroyed before me. In other words, all the promises of Abraham They were there and ready for the taking. All that was required was obedience and instead disobedience and therefore Babylon. But, verse 20, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the ends of the earth. Israel is not found faithful, but God is. He says, you will rejoice, but not in what you've achieved but in God's grace. Verse 21, They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. Sound familiar? He goes all the way back to the beginning. Isaiah says, You should have known the end of the story. What do we find in the wandering in the wilderness? Stubborn, stubborn Israel and gracious God. So what do we find in the days of Isaiah? Stubborn Israel and gracious God. But there is a warning here, and it finishes here in verse 22. There's no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Now, that's a strong place to end, and there's been this metronome of judgment and beyond judgment that we've been following in the book. But there's also another reason why this statement is here. We're going to find this again at the end of chapter 57 and 5721. And here's why that's interesting. Because starting at the beginning of the second half of the book in chapter 40, you go nine chapters and you hit there's no rest for the wicked. Then you start in 49, the next verse, you go nine chapters, there's no rest for the wicked. And guess what you have after chapter 57, verse 21? Nine more chapters. Okay? This is the divisionary mark in the cadence of the book. Now, I'm still chewing on this, but I find it very fascinating what the last repetition is, because it's not in 66, no rest for the wicked. Instead, look at how the book is closed out. Chapter 26, verse 24, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, and the fire shall not be quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. There's no rest for the wicked. There's no rest for the wicked. The worm will not die, and the fire is not quenched. And it's that language that Jesus picks up to use his warning of final judgment. Okay. One of my favorite sentences, just because it's well-crafted, uh, in all of the writings of C.S. Lewis, in The Problem of Pain, he's talking about the problem of hell. And he lays out everything that we've talked about tonight, How God lays his life down on behalf of the people and freely invites all idolaters to turn to him and he says all that mercy and yet hell exists and the horror of that is not the horror of a judgmental god it's the horror of a rebellious people Isaiah lays out all of these things, lays out all of these things, makes this great invitation to the people of God. God is patient and long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but there is no rest for the wicked. And he warns again, and he gives the invitation again, and there is no rest for the wicked, and then we finally get to the end of the book, and what do we find? We find the end of God's patience. We find with humanity's stubborn and final rejection of God, an end of the story. And it's wild that that's the way the book of Isaiah closes because as we continue to read, you're going to see that seems so out of step with everything we read before it. The new heavens and the earth and yet Isaiah ends there. Revelation, the new heavens and the earth and yet there really is this lake of fire. Let's pray. Father, I honestly believe in the depths of our heart, oftentimes we just don't get it. We either think that we must deserve, and so we keep our distance until we can get ourselves straightened out, or we think we have deserved, and so we don't come when we have need. But our need for you today is just as great as it was when we realized it the first time and we bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. And at the end, when we will bow our knees and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will give you the glory for all that we've done and we will rely totally on you for salvation. Who is like this God? There is no other. Who else is our rock? There is no one. Why would we need another God when we have a God like you? Thank you. Thank you that you desired to be made known. Thank you that you did not speak these things in secret, but so that you would be known from east to west. You declared the end from the beginning. You said, my judgment shall come to pass and my purpose will be fulfilled. And you did it so that we might know you. Let us build our lives on the revelation of the self-revealing God. Let us believe the truth and protect us from the deceptions that we turn to instead. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.